You're listening to The Seventh, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. preview for the movie Signs or The Sixth Sense or something like, should maybe bring the lights up. Is everyone spooked officially now? Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, glad that you're here with us. This is a good week to join us. Uh, if you are new or if you're pressing in after a, a hiatus for a season as we begin a new series this morning, uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in this morning and begin with a question for us. And the question is this, if Jesus wrote us a letter, Crosspoint Peachtree City, what, what do you think he would say? What do you think that letter would look like if Jesus could send us a letter by way of the United States Postal Service somehow from his kingdom and throne? What would Jesus say to us as a church? What would he say to you individually? What would he commend us for? What would he say, well done, good and faithful servant with respect to What would he rebuke us for? What would he call us to repentance with respect to? Um, What what promises would he offer us to spur us on toward the finish line? And what elements and attributes of his character, his person and work, would he reveal to us in order to help spur us along toward the finish line for the prize? See, here's the beauty of this series is that we don't have to speculate the answer to that question. For the next Two months, we're going to spend uh, some time looking at the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, a daunting book for many, very much a misinterpreted book by many for the last couple thousand years since it was written. And the beauty of these chapters is we get to explore, yes, what Jesus has to say to seven first century churches in a particular context. Some of them were facing persecution, hostility, even to the point of martyrdom. Others were experiencing the creeping in of false teaching, false doctrine, and still others were being swayed by the culture rather than swaying and transforming that culture for the sake of the gospel. And let me ask you, do do any of those things sound familiar to you with respect to the culture that we live in as a church? I would say so, right? Do you experience hostility? Maybe not to the point of martyrdom, but uh, do you find yourself being talked down to for being a Christian in the culture in which you live? Maybe you experience threats to sound doctrine in the world in which we live now, where the church is compromising herself more and more with respect to biblical truth. Or perhaps it's moral compromise by the church in the midst of the surrounding pressures of the world in which you and I live. And that's huge in this American subculture that we live in for us as the church. See, Here's the good news. For the next couple months, we are going to look at seven letters that were written specifically to seven first century churches in a particular context. And these letters are intentionally and specifically addressed to deal with certain issues that those churches were facing, no doubt. But those letters are also for us. That going back to my original question, if Jesus were to write us a letter, Crosspoint, Peachtree City, what do you think he would say? The truth is Jesus did write to us. That these seven churches are not just what the Spirit spoke to a particular church, but rather, if you look at each of these letters, which we'll unpack in in the coming weeks, you see that each of them ends with the words, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. 
It's the language found there, that there's something meant in each of these seven letters for you and for me. Jesus is going to reveal himself in some very unique ways to each of these churches based on what they're dealing with. That's the grace of God in and of itself, that we have a God who is able to reveal his particular attributes in our moments of need, in our moments of weakness, and meet us right there in the midst of those. So as we dive in, what we're going to find is that in each of these letters, uh, Jesus is going to commend the church for some things. He's going to rebuke the church for some things, and he's going to reveal who he is, and he's going to make some promises to the church if they'll fight to conquer in the midst of the challenges that they're facing. And so I would encourage each of you, and this is the prayer that I'm going to own for the next couple months myself. If it's helpful, you can write this down. I hope that we would pray this as a people for the next couple months. Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable. Rebuke me in that which is dishonorable. And above all, help me to see you more and more for who you truly are. We're going to come back to that prayer over and over again. That's my prayer for us. It's my prayer for for you individually, for our church collectively as we move forward through this series. And let me just uh, put to rest some issues very quickly regarding the book of Revelation. Um, This is a a highly disputed book of the Bible. Um, Interestingly, we're not going to get into uh, much of the disputed material. That comes from chapter 4 on. We're not intentionally trying to dodge or avoid the hard stuff. We'll come back around to that eventually as a church because we believe in preaching the full counsel of God's word. But as we work through this particular series, regardless of what you believe about the book of Revelation, regardless of what your end times theology is, we should all be able to link arms under the banner of one unquestionable theme found throughout this book, and that theme is this, Jesus wins, all right? That's where we're going for the next two months. Jesus wins, that Revelation is the story of Jesus winning, Satan losing, and everything sad becoming untrue for those who are on Jesus' side. That's what we're going to harp on over and over and over again. My goal is to paint a, a robust picture of the king sitting on his throne for you so that you can bend your knee to him and be encouraged and comforted in the midst of hardship, suffering, and the battle for compromise in the culture in which you live. So with that being said, you can open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Revelation chapter 1. We'll be in all of this chapter of the Bible, which is why I didn't want to belabor a long introduction this morning. Um, We're not going to read the passage up front. James did that for us. Thank you for handling all the hard pronunciations. Um, I would say so that I don't have to, but we're going to work through this verse by verse, so I'm going to have to say these words myself anyway. So let me pray, uh, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us through the book of Revelation, a book that many people dodge, a book that many consider to be the curse of the church because we can't seem to agree on much of anything that comes out of this book of the Bible, and yet a book in which we get perhaps a more robust vision of Jesus, who you are and what you've done for us so that we might be reconciled to God and enjoy him forever. We do thank you for this book of the Bible. I pray for your help, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would open the eyes of everyone in this room, including my own. You would open our ears. You would open our hearts to receive everything that you have for us this morning. That we would get a glimpse of you seated on your throne, high and exalted, as we work through this particular chapter of the Bible. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of 
King Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. If you jump in looking at verse 1, the reason we're going through the first chapter of the book of Revelation is because we believe that um, everything is written in context. We believe that every word comes in the context of a sentence, every sentence in the context of a paragraph, every paragraph in the context of a chapter, and so forth and so on. And so, yes, we're going to work through chapters 2 and 3, these seven letters to these seven first century churches, but it would be foolish of us to jump in right at chapter 2, verse 1, and ignore everything in chapter 1, which sets the stage for everything that we're going to look at for the next two months. And so we want to work through the first chapter of Revelation to set the stage, to set up some context. And so if you look at verses 1 and 2, we get these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. All right, a couple of things right off the bat, just to kind of lay some groundwork. It's not the book of Revelations, plural. It's the book of Revelation. It's, it's one grand unveiling, you might say, that the word revelation means an unveiling of unseen realities. This is a major unveiling that we're welcomed into this morning. And so let me ask you this question right off the bat. What do you think of when you think of an unveiling? For me, my mind immediately goes to a couple of reality shows that I'm into. Uh, one is a show called Flip or Flop. Maybe some of you have seen this on HGTV. Um, it's a show in which a couple comes in and they flip houses and, and uh, it's insane. They, they jump in and it looks like a dumpster when they first get to work. And by the time they're done, you're just amazed. You go, I want to live in that house. And, and they do it over and over and over again. And so you wait out about 27 minutes of a half-hour show for the big unveiling at the end where you get to see all the work that they've put into it. Another one of my favorite shows is a show called Bar Rescue where they go into local watering holes and they revamp them. They're dying um, establishments. And this guy by the name of John Taffer, who, who is a, a guy who is into the science of restaurants and bars, comes in and he, he revamps these places. And you get to see him at the very end of the hour-long episode. The last two or three minutes is the big reveal. You've waited 57, 58 minutes to get it. And then it comes and you're excited at the end and maybe... You watch shows like that, maybe you've experienced that kind of uh, reality where you get to be a part of some sort of unveiling. Um, we, we love unveilings. We're drawn to them, especially as it pertains to eternal things, which is why you have so many books. If you go to Books A Million or Barnes & Noble, you'll, you'll notice there's a section of books, not just a couple, but a, a section of books devoted to uh, stories of people who have experienced near death or have died and come back to life, and now they're telling you about their experience in heaven or hell. We're drawn to interviews on shows like Dateline and 2020 that address the same types of stories, people being interviewed who claim to have seen the realities of heaven and hell. We're fascinated by that. Or perhaps you've been on the other side of the conversation. You've been somewhere amazing, and then you get to unveil it for other people. My sister uh, recently went to Spain, and she came back, and uh, her unpacking, 
her experience for us turned into a three-hour slideshow in my living room where she uh, somehow figured out how to connect her laptop to our television, and I felt like I was sitting in a meat cross point lunch. She's just walking me through her entire experience, unveiling for me the reality of what she experienced for a couple weeks when she was overseas. We do that with people, right? We want to welcome them into the things that we've seen. When I was a kid, uh, my grandparents lived in a neighborhood Uh, that had really, really deep ditches with pipes that would run under the, the driveways of the various homes. And the reason that matters is because, unashamedly, my favorite movie growing up, and to this day, is The Goonies. And so... Uh, as a kid, I would leave uh, the house when I'd stay with my grandparents, and I would go live the life of a goonie. I would go jump into those ditches, and, and it was an underground experience for me. Somehow, my imagination would run wild, and all of a sudden, I'm living in the land of pirates and buried treasure. And then I would come back from that experience, and I felt the need to unpack it for them. Like, they needed to, to know what I had just experienced that they were not a part of because their brittle bodies couldn't possibly take all of the adventures that I had been on. This book of the Bible is, is an unveiling. It's an unveiling of the king, his throne, his kingdom, and his victory over evil. If you've ever thought to yourself, I wonder what heaven's like, you get a glimpse of it in this book of the Bible. That you and I are, are invited into this unveiling. It's really interesting that, that the very language of verses 1 and 2, if you, if you pay attention, communicate that this vision is not remit. Uh, meant to remain hidden. So you have language like the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You have language like God gave him to show. You have language like he made it known. You have language like all that he saw. And so there's, there's something meant to be seen, something meant to be shown, something meant to be known, something meant to be unveiled, something meant to be revealed. And here's the really cool thing. God went to great lengths so that you could receive this vision and experience its unveiling. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, we're told this. We're told that this is, first and foremost, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But John goes on to say, which God gave him, okay? So God gave Jesus this revelation to show his servants. That's you and me. Okay, so there's a pipeline, there's a channel of communication, and here's the beauty of this. Um, This revelation is for his servants, not just seminary grads, not just professors of theology. Um, Oftentimes people look at certain books of the Bible and they go, that's not for me. God didn't intend that one for me. That's for the varsity squad, that's for people who have studied Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, Um, certainly not for me, and yet uh, we're told in Verse 1 of this book of the Bible, before we even move any further, that this is for all those who profess to be Jesus' servants, who bend their need to him as king. And John goes on to say that this was made known by sending an angel. And that the angel was sent to his servant John, who bore witness to everything that we're going to see. So there you go. There's your pipeline, all right? The U.S. Postal Service has less stops sometimes when they're getting your mail to wherever it's going. So God took uh, great care and went to great lengths to get this information, this unveiling to you this morning so that we could look at this, so that we could get a glimpse of the king in all of his glory. And that doesn't even take into account the copying and preserving of manuscripts for nearly 2,000 years 
as well as the translating of those manuscripts into our language so that we could hold a Bible in our hands this morning and read all of this. God went to great, great lengths. And lastly, as we look at the first couple of verses, uh, we can be sure that this unveiling is trustworthy, that most all apocalyptic literature in the ancient world was uh, written in a false name, a pseudonym. So people would record things, but then they would put it uh, in the name of an Old Testament figure like Moses or Enoch, someone of reputation, so that people would take it seriously. And yet here uh, we have John, which most scholars agree is the Apostle John, one of the 12, who uses his own name, authenticating his message. Essentially, he's saying, hey, if you don't believe me, why don't you come out to prison where I'm hanging out here on the island of Patmos, and I'll tell you all about it. I'm not ashamed of anything that I'm recording. I've seen it with my own eyes. Jesus the King revealed it to me, and I'm more than happy to have a cup of coffee with you and tell you about everything that I've seen and authenticate every bit of it. I'm not hiding behind a false name. It's me, John. You don't believe me. Come find me, and we'll talk about everything that I've seen, and I'm happy to share it all with you. Verse 3, John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Most people, when they look at the book of Revelation, they don't consider it a blessing. They consider it a curse to the church because it's created great division in terms of uh, where people land in how to interpret the Bible, where people land in terms of their view of the end times, uh, where people land in terms of uh, literal versus uh, metaphorical and symbolic. When you look at the scriptures, there's, there's great division. And so a lot of people look at the book of Revelation uh, like the song that you get in How the Grinch Sold Christmas. They wouldn't touch, touch it with a, a 39 and a half foot pole, I think is, is how the phrase goes, right? And yet we're told in verse 3, read aloud these words and you'll be blessed. Hear these words and you'll be blessed. Obey these words and you'll be blessed. I don't know if you know this or not, but Revelation is the only book in the Bible with an explicit blessing pronounced for reading it. Like if you go sit and read the book of Revelation in your time alone this week, as we read it this morning, that God promises an explicit blessing to us for reading these very words. That in some sense, to ignore the book of Revelation is to reject a promised blessing of God. Moving on to verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, that, that John is writing to seven first century churches scattered throughout the province of Asia Minor, the Roman province at the time, which is now western Turkey on our maps, if you were to pull that up today. And there were way more than seven churches at the time in Asia Minor. So this language of seven is meant to be symbolic. You'll see it over and over again throughout the book of Revelation that it's meant to communicate fullness or completion, which is another way that we know that God is trying to communicate to the church at large, not just these specific seven churches. The predominant issues, again, that, that these churches were facing, and we'll look at this for the next two months, persecution and hostility toward the gospel. So if, if you find yourself in social circle, circles where people look down on you uh, because of what you believe, if they think you're foolish because of what you believe, narrow-minded because of what you believe, you'll find the next couple of months as we dive into these letters to be very helpful for you. He addresses issues like false teaching and doctrine. So if you find yourself challenged by the culture around you and even maybe those within the church that are pressing on biblical truth, um, biblical faithfulness, 
doctrinal faithfulness, this will be helpful for you. If you find yourself battling in terms of compromising with the surrounding culture, if you find yourself uh, being swayed by culture more than swaying and transforming culture for the sake of the gospel, this will be helpful for you. If you find yourself in the land of spiritual complacency, that's a world we live in, especially where there are churches on every corner, but the gospel is not saturating the, the zip code at all in comparison to the number of, of buildings. This will be very helpful for you. John goes on to say, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Do you notice the Trinitarian language here? All right, anytime you see a passage that communicates the Trinity, that's huge because there are cults, there are other world religions that would say there is no Trinitarian God, that Jesus is not God, he's nothing more than a mere man. Uh, they would attempt to dissect the God of the universe in a way that doesn't communicate that he is Trinitarian in nature. And so every time you see a, a passage or a verse that communicates God's Trinitarian being, it's crucial to look at that. Notice that, uh, we're told that grace and peace are from him who is and who was and who is to come. And we know that's not Jesus because if you look further on in verse 5, we're told, and also from Jesus, right? So this is communicating God the Father, his eternality. It's reminding us of I am in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Moses at the burning bush where he gets the call from God to go and say to Pharaoh, let the Israelites go. Let them go so they can worship God in the wilderness in freedom. And, and Moses says, who am, I, who am I to say sent me when I encounter Pharaoh in all of his power and strength and glory? And God says, you tell him that I am sent you. I am. I'm self-sustaining, uh, self-existing, dependent on no one, God of the universe. That's who you say sent you. That's the language here. The God who is and who was and who is to come. No beginning, no end. He's eternal. And then we get the language of the seven spirits who were before his throne. This is communicating, I believe, the, the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit. That This is communicating the language of the Holy Spirit. You see this over and over again in the book of Revelation. Let me, let me go to Isaiah verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I'll put it up on the screen to help argue the point. Scholars have gone back to this particular set of verses to make a case for this, it says this, there shall come forth from a shoot, uh, or excuse me, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. That's talking about Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Notice that there's a sevenfold description of the spirit of God. First of all, he's the spirit of the Lord. He's divine in nature. He's the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of understanding. He's the spirit of counsel. He's the spirit of might. He's the spirit of knowledge, and he's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. There's a sevenfold language there which communicates the fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're meant to see that, and that's going to be helpful for us as we dive into these seven letters over the next couple of months. And then lastly, we get God the Son, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. The word for witness is the word uh, in the Greek, martus. It's oftentimes translated martyr, 
And so what's being communicated here is that Jesus is the true martyr. He's the faithful martyr. He died for you and me. He bled out and died so that we could be reconciled to God. That Jesus is the firstborn, the first fruits. The Greek word there is, um, is the word uh, prototokos. It's where we get our word prototype. That, that Jesus is version 1.0 of everything we're going to experience. So when you look at Jesus' resurrection, his resurrecting in a physical body, triumphant over death, you can bank on that for you if you're on King Jesus' side, that he's the prototype, he's the first fruits, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You have no victory anymore. You have no sting because we are all conquerors in Christ. He sets the stage for us for what's to come. And lastly, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, that Jesus is Lord over all. He's Lord over Caesar. He's Lord over Nero. He's Lord over Domitian. He's Lord over Hitler. He's Lord over Stalin. He's Lord over every president that's ever been sworn into office within our country. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that's what that kind of language is driving at. That's your God. He's the Trinitarian God of the Bible, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John goes on to say, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. That as John's unpacking this Trinitarian God, he just bursts forth in worship and he writes it down. He just goes into a doxology in the moment. He says, Jesus loves us, that you can't fully understand the love of God apart from Jesus. The greatest display of love in all of human history took place just outside of Jerusalem where Jesus spilled his blood for you and me. That Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is the language of the doctrine of redemption, that you and I were enslaved to sin. Our hands were in the shackles. We could do nothing And Jesus died and bled and grabbed hold of the key and put it in the shackles and turned that key and freed us. So that if you're a Christian now, you're free to lift your hands in honor of your king. That when we go back to those shackles, it's a willing going to at this point. Because we're not enslaved anymore. We've been freed. And lastly, Jesus made us a kingdom of priests. That because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice of atonement with his blood, you and I function like priests in a couple of ways. Number one, we now have intimate access to God. That if you go back to the Old Testament language of the tabernacle, the high priest had access to the holy of holies, the, the inner room where the presence of God was dwelling and, and no one else. And yet when Jesus died and rose and conquered death, the, the veil of the curtain was split in two. It was torn so that we now have access through Jesus Christ to God. We have intimate access, and in that way we function like priests. And then secondly, we're able now, like the priests of the Old Testament, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, Romans 12, 1. Totally uh, acceptable and holy to our God. Not, not because uh, we, we make atonement for ourselves, but because Jesus has made atonement, we now can offer ourselves up to God as a pleasing aroma with our very lives. That Jesus accomplishes all of this for us, And this causes John to praise him in the middle of his writing. He just bursts forth in worship. It says, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And he goes on to say in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, 
Amen. That this is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, this language of Jesus coming with the clouds. Um, it says this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is Jesus uh, upon his resurrection and ascension. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That it's really interesting because if you fast forward in the book of Revelation to chapter 5, verse 9, and also chapter 7, verse 9, you get this language that the church uses often, that every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people will profess Jesus Christ as Lord. You get this language that um, God, Jesus has ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And yet we're told here that all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. It's really interesting. What I believe this kind of language is communicating to us is that the grace of God, on the one hand, has no bounds, yet neither does the judgment of God. That, that God doesn't withhold his grace based on ethnicity, based on skin color, based on gender, based on tax bracket, etc., etc., yet he also doesn't withhold his judgment based on ethnicity based on skin color, based on gender, based on tax bracket, and so forth and so on. That, that when we stand before God, he's looking for one thing and one thing only, namely the blood of Jesus. Okay, that's the beauty of the gospel. The question this morning for everyone in this room is, are you covered by the blood of Jesus? He, he is no respecter of person. He's not looking at your skin color. He's not looking at what kind of income you bring in. He's not looking at what neighborhood you live in. He, he's not looking at your gender. He's not looking at the way you dress. He's, he's looking at you, and he's looking for the blood of Jesus covering you. Are you covered by the blood of Jesus? Very simple question this morning. By faith, have you put your trust in his perfect life, the life that you and I can never live, in his atoning death, the death that you and I deserve to die, and in his bodily resurrection, triumphant over sin and death, as we'll see as we continue to plow through this chapter of the Bible. We get the booming voice of God in verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, this language of eternality. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. God's saying, I'm the beginning and the end, and even human language doesn't communicate it well because he goes before the beginning, right? He has no beginning, and he goes beyond the end. He has no end. That even human language is insufficient at times to communicate the eternality of God, that he's always been and he always will be. If you want to blow your mind, just hit rewind on human history. Go back to uh, last year for you and the year before that and just work your way back until you weren't even in existence and trace your, your family tree all the way back as far as you can and then just keep tracing human history all the way back to its beginnings and then trace it back to the creation of that and try to go further. It'll hurt your head. You cannot do it. God has no, no beginning. And, and maybe that's a good exercise for some of us to have our heads hurt a little bit uh, by way of God's attributes and, and his glory. He's eternal, and he's also almighty. His power knows no bounds. 
Let me ask a question this morning. Um, is that the God that you worship? Is that the God that you've had a picture painted of along the way? Or, or have you encountered a watered-down version of the God of the Bible in, attempt, in an attempt to make him more palatable to you? Um, whether it be when you pick up the, the Bible for yourself and read it and, and interpret it, or uh, maybe it's been your run at the church, and, and the church has said, we don't, we don't want to scare you off, so we're, we're going to make God more palatable for you. We're going to uh, create him in a nice, neat package, a nice, neat box that you can put a bow on, and we're going to give him to you. And yet, at the end of the day, the problem with that is he's not big enough to bend a knee to anymore. So what we want to do is we want to let God out of the box for the next two months, okay? If, if you've experienced a watered-down version of God, my hope is that you encounter a version of this so big, so robust, so majestic, so glorious, so magnificent that you can't help but do anything but bend your knee to him. The church does a great disservice when we shrink down God, when we water down God in an effort to make him more palatable. Verse 9, John goes on to say, I, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That You, you get this weird paradox. If, if you're experiencing suffering right now in your life, if you're experiencing sorrow right now in your life, if you're experiencing pain right now in your life, if you're experiencing the reality of the effects of living in a fallen, broken world, if that's you in this room this morning, here's the beauty of the gospel, is that there's this weird paradox in which that doesn't prove that the kingdom of God is not in existence and that the king is not on his throne. Rather, John, in almost nonchalant language, notice he says, hey, I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, that they just go hand in hand, that kingdom and tribulation go together. That's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, that glory comes through suffering, that the throne comes by way of Jerusalem and a bloody cross, that, that if someone told you that Christianity would make all of your problems go away, they lied. They sold you a false bill of goods, that we all live in a fallen, broken world in which there's suffering and pain and hurt. And until you die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first, you're going to experience those things, and so am I. But here's the beauty. John is speaking words of hope to any and all who have experienced and are experiencing pain and sorrow and hurt, the effects of the fall, the effects of living in this broken world. He's saying that's not antithetical to the kingdom, that the king still reigns. The king is sitting on his throne, and we're about to get a vision of him in verses 12 through 16 to encourage us and unveiling that the king is still there and he is for us and he is with us in the midst of everything that we're going through. That the, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity is not absent of our lives. He is heavily and deeply involved and not just in the good parts, but in the pain and the hurt and the suffering. He walks with us in that stuff. Here in verse nine, we also get clued in on where this book of the Bible was written. And so on account of his being a witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his unwillingness to waver in making much of the person and work of Jesus, John is exiled to essentially the Alcatraz of Asia Minor, um, an island called Patmos. It's a remote uh, Aegean island uh, that's 
uh, about 40 miles southwest of, of Ephesus, where the first letter is going to go that we're going to look at next week. Um, this, this book of the Bible is written around the mid-90s under the reign of the emperor Domitian. There was great persecution going on for Christians at the time. And John records these words in verse 10. He says this. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. He says, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day means Sunday in biblical terminology, that it's the day that Jesus was resurrected from the, day, uh, the dead. It's the day that Christians celebrate his resurrection week in and week out. John says, I was in a cell, in a prison, on a remote island, in the middle of the ocean, and I had a church service with Jesus, and it was amazing. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt completely alone and had Jesus meet you in the middle of your loneliness? Can you imagine what that was like for John? To be completely alone, abandoned, stood up for the, the name of Jesus Christ, and he's exiled, he's off in isolation, and he has a meeting with the king. He has a meeting with the king on Sunday, a church service with King Jesus. And Jesus says, what you're about to see Write it down, and I want you to send it out. It must go forth. And here we get a list of the seven churches that we'll, we'll be looking at over the course of this series for the next couple of months. And the interesting thing is that Jesus says, um, I don't just have a letter for each of those churches. This entire book of the Bible is meant for each of those churches and every church beyond that that exists for my glory. Notice that? He says, what, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. That the whole book of Revelation is meant... For us, it's meant for these churches. It's meant for Jesus' church. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to admonish us. It's meant to point to the king who sits on his throne. Jesus says, write it down, and you will be edified by it as the church. And then in verse 12, this is where everything shifts. It's amazing. Verse 12 says, then I turned, this is John speaking, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw... That, that up to this point, we've been waiting for the big reveal, right? It's the first 57 minutes of bar rescue. It's the first 27 minutes of flip or flop. You're just waiting it out. We, we know there's going to be an unveiling for 11 verses. We don't see anything. And then all of a sudden in verse 12, we're told, and now the moment you've all been waiting for. John could have easily written those words to us, right? And then we get the vision itself in verses 12 through 16. John says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. He goes on to say, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now this is interesting to me, right? It's the beginning of the big reveal. It's the beginning of everything God shows John that's recorded in all of the book of Revelation. And the first visual is what? The king. You notice that? It's not a, a glimpse of what the streets 
of heaven are paved with. It's not a glimpse of what the mansions look like. It's not a glimpse of how urban or suburban or rural the new heavens and earth will be. It's not a glimpse of what the food will be like. It's not a glimpse of what kind of recreation will exist. Rather, it's a glimpse of the king on his throne, that heaven is ultimately about Jesus. Let me share with you a quote from John Piper that wrecked my life about a decade ago. It's found in his book, God is the Gospel. I would uh, point you to that book if you've never read that book before. And in it, he says this. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, he goes on to say, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's a provocative question, I think, because um, for many of us, when, when we were sold the gospel, quote-unquote, it, it was an escape from hell and a gaining of eternal golf, eternal pizza, eternal fill in the blank with whatever brings you great joy. And you go to funerals and it's devastating, is it not? Oh, such and such, he's probably up there on the 16th hole right now hitting a seven iron as if that's all that heaven is. Piper goes on to say this. He says, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The quote finishes with these words, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. So the question this morning for all of us in this room is this. Do you view the greatest prize that the gospel affords you to be heaven or its king? Let me ask that question again. Do you view the greatest prize that the gospel affords you to be heaven or its king? We get this glorious picture of the king on his throne in verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16 paint a picture of the glorified, resurrected Jesus. This is not a vision of Jesus meek and mild. This is not a vision of Jesus that you've seen in in frames holding a tiny little lamb in his bosom. Is Jesus like that? Yes, absolutely. That that there is a side of Jesus... um, that is absolutely gentle and humble and meek. Those are attributes of Jesus, but oftentimes we get an incomplete picture of who Jesus is, that this is a picture of the risen king in all of his glory. And we're told that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands, which represent the church, that Jesus has not abandoned the church, that when we use the language of Jesus as the chief shepherd sitting at the top of the org chart, we're not just throwing around cute language as the church, that we actually believe that Jesus is in the midst of his church and he's leading the church on a mission for a purpose to bring great glory to himself and to bring great joy to us. 
Notice each of the descriptors in verses 12 through 16. It's really interesting. We'll talk about this some over the course of the next couple of months. These all allude back to the Old Testament. That the language son of man, that phrase comes from Daniel 7. The phrase long robe comes from Daniel 10 in Exodus 28, as does the golden sash. That the white hair um, language comes from Daniel 7 as well. That the eyes like fire and the feet like bronze come from Daniel 10. That the roaring voice like many waters comes from Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 43, that the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth comes from Isaiah 49, and the face like the shining sun comes from Daniel 10, that we're meant to see that this Jesus that we get a vision of who is unveiled for us is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that from Genesis 3.15 on, there was the promised hero that was to come to save people from their sins, and as you read the Testament, the entire Old Testament foreshadows the coming of the king to save the day. And everything in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16 affirm that Jesus has come and the fulfillment has happened, that the hero has showed up on the scene and he has indeed saved his people. Now, here's where it's a little bit crucial, and this is going to drive us for the next couple months. Um, How do we interpret a vision like this? Does this passage mean that Jesus is a white-haired old man? Does this passage mean that Jesus has a piece of weaponry protruding from his mouth like a reverse sword eater? Is that what this is communicating? I don't think so. Um, It's important to note that with respect to this vision and everything that we're going to look at for the next couple months as we unpack each of these letters, that John sees everything in symbolic form. I'll give you a couple of Old Testament examples to make sense of this so that we can move forward for the next couple of months and have a healthy understanding of how to interpret Uh, these passages that we're looking at. Um, You remember Joseph's dream? When Joseph was a little boy um, in Genesis chapter 37, he dreams that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to him, right? Now, if you go on and read the story, we know that that's symbolic of his brothers and his mother and father bowing down to him as he comes under the reign of Pharaoh and is second in command and his brother brothers and his mother and father in the midst of a famine need food and they come to him and they bend a knee to him asking for help. We know how it unfolds if you've read the story before, but the question is, does that mean that in his dream he saw his mother, his father, and his brothers bowing down to him? I don't think so. I think he saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him in symbolic form. Here'd be uh, even more clarity. If you go to Pharaoh's dream in Genesis 41, He dreams that seven fat cows are feeding on grass by the Nile River. And then he dreams that seven skinny cows show up and eat the seven fat cows. Does that mean in his dream that he saw seven years of healthy crops followed by seven years of famine? If so, he wouldn't have needed Joseph to interpret the dream for him in the first place. That the idea is that he actually saw the symbolism of seven fat cows eaten by seven skinny cows, that he saw it in symbolic form and then needed help to clarify, what does this mean? The same is true if you look at the book of Revelation. The same is true of John as he sees this unveiling vision. If you look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, jumping ahead, we're told this, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And we know that that's symbolic of Jesus, the true Passover lamb who was slain. 
but we're not told that John sees Jesus and then describes him as a seven-horned sheep. That's not how uh, it's unpacked for us. Rather, he sees a lamb standing, which symbolizes something about Jesus. Remember, John's told in chapter 1, verse 11, to write what he sees with his own eyes. And so this vision of Jesus in verses 12 through 16, it's not a literal picture of what Jesus looks like. Rather, it's a picture of what Jesus is like. You tracking with me? Does that make sense? And so as you look at verses 12 through 16, we see Jesus robed in majesty as the king. We see Jesus clothed in priestly garments as our mediator. We see Jesus with hair like wool, symbolizing both purity and wisdom, age, eternality. We see Jesus with a piercing gaze gaze that sees the secrets of human hearts and causes men to melt with conviction. With feet like burnished bronze, symbolizing the power to trample and crush all that is impure. With a thundering voice, emphasizing the authority with which he speaks. With words of truth coming forth from his mouth that cut to the heart, powerful enough to purge all evil. And with a face that shines forth his radiance, the brilliance of his majesty. That's the picture of the king on his throne. We're meant to get a picture of what Jesus is like here. I'm, I'm going to apologize, but not. Um, you're, you can bank on probably about every four to six weeks, you're going to get a C.S. Lewis reference from me, um, which means you're probably going to get about 12 a year. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out now. You probably already picked up on it. We all have our, our ticks and our tendencies uh, in the realm of public speaking, and so there you go. I've called it what it is. Um, if, you, if you look at the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, love that story, one of my favorites. Um, this passage reminds me of this story. Uh, maybe you're familiar with it. Um, Edmund and Lucy and Peter and Susan have made their way into the land of Narnia, and they've become friends with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they've gone to the home of the beavers, and they're eating a meal that just sounds amazing. If you ever read uh, that particular scene, that's my dream for community groups because essentially it's just really good food and uh, in, inviting hospitality that leads to a discussion about Aslan the king, the Christ figure. Um, and, and when they get to the, the part of the story where dinner's done and they're talking about uh, Aslan, the, the great king, the great lion, uh, the kids assume that Aslan is a man. And Mr. Beaver responds and says this because animals talk in the land of Narnia. He says, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Here's where we get the famous line. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Peter's words, and I think this this reminds me of John in this moment as he gets this vision. I'm longing to see him, said Peter. 
even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point, that that's a full picture of who Jesus is, that Jesus is both the line of Judah and the lamb who was slain. I love how Jonathan Edwards puts it in a sermon that he preaches on uh, the diverse excellencies of Christ. I'll put this up on the screen for you. It's amazing. He says this, there do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. There meet in Jesus Christ infinite justice and infinite grace. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. There meet in the person of Christ the deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. There are conjoined in the person of Christ infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. In the person of Christ, there are conjoined an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. In the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. In Christ do meet together self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. That oftentimes we envision Jesus in his incarnation, but fail to envision him in his exaltation. It's both Jesus meek and mild and Jesus majestic and triumphant. So let me ask you this morning, do you have a balanced view of who Jesus is, a full view of who Jesus is? Do you see him as both the lion and the lamb? Here John gets a vision of the great lion. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The same John who had leaned on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper, his friend, now falls on his face before Jesus, his king. It's a reminder of Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah gets a glimpse of the glory of God and all of his majesty and splendor and cries out, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I sit amongst the people of unclean lips. It's a reminder of the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9, where Jesus radiates with the glory of God, and the disciples fall on their faces and don't even know how to talk anymore. They're just tongue-tied. But John falls on his face because he's gotten a glimpse of the king in all of his glory. Which begs the question for us, when was the last time that you fell on your face before God? with a full vision of, of him and his glory. It says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Imagine your moment of greatest fear and Jesus puts his hand on you and says, don't be afraid. Have you been there before? You don't worship an unapproachable God. He's transcendent. He's holy other. He's altogether different and distinct from everything he's made, and yet he's eminent. He entered into the world that we live in. He took on human flesh. He's so very near and present with his people in times of joy and in times of distress. It's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't say, fear not, it's me, Jesus, meek and mild, the one that holds lambs in his bosom. You notice that? That's what we typically do in approaching someone who's experiencing great fear. We approach them gently, offering them our softer side. That's not what Jesus does. 
Look at it. He doesn't say, fear not, it's me, Jesus, who holds lambs in his bosom. He says, fear not, it's me, Jesus, the eternal death-conquering, hell-conquering king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus isn't saying, fear not, I'm not that terrifying. He's saying, fear not, I am that terrifying, and you're on my side, and I'm on your side, and I'm with you, and I'm for you, and you're mine. I've conquered every obstacle that stands in the way of our reconciliation, and I love you. In other words, Jesus not only conquered death, he conquered death for you and for me. I love this line from one of the great hymns that Charles Wesley wrote. It says this, his kingdom cannot fail. He rules over heaven and earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. That he is the great conquering king. He's our conquering king. And as our conquering king, he says, as we close this morning in verses 19 and 20, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Most scholars agree that this book of the Bible can be divided into two major sections. The things that are, namely what we're gonna look at, chapters two and three, the letters to the churches, and the things that are to take place after this, chapters 4 and beyond, working your way through the rest of the book. For the next two months, we're going to look at part 1, chapters 2 and 3, these letters to these seven churches. And as we do, we're going to talk about the language of lampstands and stars and angels and some of the symbolism of all that, that God is trying to communicate. But ultimately, as we work our way through this series, um, don't forget that by definition, you are the church. When Jesus writes to the church, he's writing to you. The church is not a building. The church is not a place. The church is not a service. The church is a people. You don't go to church. You are the church. And that, that's hard to work your way out of that kind of language. You know, we, we, for so long, we go to church. We go to the church. We, we go to the place. We go to the service. We go to the building. That, that reduces the definition of the church. You're the church. Wherever you go, you take the church with you. And that means that there's something for you and for me in each of these letters because we are the church. Ask God what he wants to teach you and be open to his teaching for the next couple months. Again, as we dive into this series, keep the following prayer before you. Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable. Rebuke me in that which is dishonorable. And above all, help me to see you more and more for who you truly are. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.